Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Today, Dr. Lynette Mark, who is one of our associate professors of anesthesia and otolaryngology here at Johns Hopkins. She's also the founder of the Difficult Airway Response Team program here at Hopkins and a founding director of the Society for Airway Management. And we are going to talk about the history of how Dr. Mark founded the DART program here, how one would go about founding a difficult airway program, if that's something people are interested in, and of course, her approach to the difficult airway and the advice she has for listeners out there. Dr. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so let's start with the DART program. It's something that I personally rely on, not irregularly, and many of us do. We think it's really a fantastic thing that we have here at Hopkins and provides a lot of security to those of us dealing with potentially difficult airways. Tell me a little bit about how this started. What led you to get involved in founding this program? So my my background as an anesthesiologist is that I trained in cardiac, and it was at a time when you did not use uh, succinylcholine, and you gave high-dose narcotics and high-dose paralytics to these patients, and not surprising, about five times a year you would have an emergency surgical airway in the cardiac ORs. Mm. When I was recruited to Hopkins, I did 50% cardiac and 50% in the critical care operating rooms, which included our head and neck um, uh, program, which is one of the largest in the country. And in that area, what I came to appreciate were the unique skills of the otolaryngologists. They brought to airway management uh, rigid laryngoscopy, specifically the Hollinger anterior commissure scope, and were obvious experts in uh, surgical airways. And so we were all in one large OR suite at the time. And so when we would have emergencies in the cardiac ORs, we would call STAT. And luckily, our otolaryngologists, if they could, they would break scrub and they would apply these techniques to our cardiac patients that were in airway respiratory distress. And we very quickly learned that at least in the OR, we could mount a multidisciplinary team that included attendings from anesthesia, otolaryngology, and usually a trauma surgeon. Uh, Luckily, we had a very high level of expertise with our otolaryngology nursing team, and they put together a very simple, specialized, difficult airway cart that specifically included these techniques that the otolaryngologists use. At the same time, anesthesiologists were very excited about airway techniques. The ASA guidelines were just coming out for management of the difficult airway, and so most departments were also 
uh, creating their own anesthesia difficult airway cards. This was primarily fiber optics with uh, Dr. Andy Ovasapian being the, the, the leader in that. And so we now had these two carts that were being designed. However, in our institution, it was our difficult airway cart, our surgical one, that really became kind of like the little engine that could. Okay. And that was the one that we used. So for years, we had a operating room program. And it now became obvious that as these patients were going out to the floor, they were getting into airway problems. And we also had a, a very nice in-house um, electronic medical record, and we developed one of the first airway alerts for patients. So now these patients would go to the floor. They would have a blue or a green airway difficult bracelet. They would get into respiratory problems. And if our anesthesia team went first as a code or an anesthesia only and they needed help, they would have to call back to the operating room. An OR nurse would uh, dispense the cart. We would have to find otolaryngology. And although we were fairly successful at doing this, and at some point after about 10, 15 years, so in the mid-90s, we published an article that said that creation of this type of a team reduced our surgical airways from, to about uh, less than 10 a year. That was the good news. Uh, the bad news was our surgical airways still had significant morbidity mortality mm -hmm. and hypoxic brain. Sure. So we kind of went on for years kind of with this team, mobilizing it to uh, out of OR locations. The hospital expanded. We suddenly didn't have otolaryngology in every OR suite, and that created an issue for us. And about two years before we formally established our difficult airway response team, we had a series of basically sentinel events um, uh, on airway, and they were all involved with systems. It was the paging system didn't work. Uh, the, we couldn't have elevator keys. It was not that we didn't have the expertise, but we could not mobilize the resources in a timely manner. Yeah. And by the last one of these in the short period of time, uh, the institution and the practitioners, because it really involved now four departments. It involved, uh, obviously, anesthesiology, otolaryngology, trauma surgery, and the emergency department. And the institution just stepped back and said, we have to do something different. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing, I think, that happened in our institution and when we reach out to other institutions was that we developed a business plan. And it was a business plan that was designed based on one that... <clears throat> Our uh, Dr. Merrick Mursky, who was actually in charge of our percutaneous trach program that, again, involved anesthesiology, otolaryngology, and trauma surgery, had, had designed. It was extremely well thought out, and it was presented to the institution and approved. And so because we had the same teams and it was airway, we were able to use that as a template. Okay. So we didn't have to create our own. We used that as a template. Uh, we adapted it to what we were going to do. We added innovations and it was accepted by the institution. It took us about a year and a half to get that accepted. I bet. So this is a business plan to basically take what started as an operating room cart and joint response, which was fairly easy to do in the operating room because everybody was there. Correct. And then the question was, how do we expand this to effectively take care of these patients when they're now having difficult airways outside of the operating room? Correct. But actually, more importantly, it was who's going to pay for it? Yeah, who's that's why you needed the business plan. That's why you needed the business And it wasn't even just who's going to pay for the capital equipment. It was going to be who's going to pay for the attending level coverage right. to provide 24-7 on people that are enormously busy. They have their own clinical responsibilities. They have their own academic interests. Uh, and you might not have those providers. So, for example, we do not have 24-7 attending coverage for otolaryngology. Right. The, the department is not large enough, even though it is the largest, so we've had to do a workaround. But, but they actually added salary support. But it really literally was who's going to pay for people. So what you did in the terms of this business plan is you put together what you thought and your team thought you needed 
in terms of the kind of uh, support, salary support, equipment support uh, from the university. You put together what you thought, or from the hospital, you put together what you thought was uh, were the benefits of doing this, mm-hmm. and uh, and that took a year and a half, which I'm not surprised to hear. You took it to the hospital, and they said, okay. Correct. The other thing we did, which was that we had always been innovative in adding new techniques, adding otolaryngology, and what we decided this time was that we were going to be innovative with combination of safety initiatives and educational systems that we had. So, for example, Lean Six Sigma had come into the institution and they were showing us how to standardize and how to do simulations. And so we applied that to simulation in our airway. And we took simulation out of a simulation center and we brought it into the exact locations where we had identified patient issues. We were the first to do that. Mm-hmm. And now that is routinely done by many, many institutions. We brought um, risk management. Most people are afraid of risk management and legal. We embrace risk management and legal. Mm-hmm. They are our friends. We brought um, human factors. No other institution had human factors, and we had already been working with human factors here. And what they can bring into identifying defects is just profound. And so that we were very, very lucky um, being able to do that. Yeah, and I imagine the, so the simulations, you actually would run uh, a difficult airway with, would, would you use a mannequin or so we used So actually we used uh, a Laredal High Fidelity Simulator. Okay. And again, because we couldn't afford it, we borrowed it mm-hmm. uh, for a year and a half, and they were incredibly gracious. And we, we had a special um, bed that we could move it into any location that we wanted to. And okay. we were given permission by risk management to do a simulation in real time. So you'd call a dart we, we as would, if... We would call a dart as if it was a real dart. The only people who we um, allowed to have knowledge ahead of time were the attending otolaryngologists and trauma surgeons on the outside chance that they were involved in a patient activity sure. that they didn't want to leave. Yep. But nobody else knew about it. Um, and it was it was really fascinating the defects that we found. And you uh, had every, you had uh, the legal team, the mm-hmm. uh, human factors team. Mm-hmm. Everybody was involved, so they could Correct. try to identify. Correct. And what were, give us some examples. What were some of the things that were identified as, as um, uh, the, defects? The, the most obvious was a safety scalpel on the dark cart. So here you have all these people moving fast, and our surgeon got cut during simulation. Mm. That was the very first thing that it was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Uh, elevator keys. All right, we have like four city blocks with the hospitals, yep. and our carts did not have elevator keys. And it turned out we have five different types of elevators. And so the keys, you had to finally, they changed the elevator, so it was one key for all elevators. Okay. Uh, the paging system. The paging system, we had new buildings going up, and sometimes the pages wouldn't go out. We, we never had a universal number, so we came up with a universal, you call almost like calling 911. So ours is we call, our first exchange is 955, and then it's just 4444. Yeah. And we had to come up with a universal script for the paging operators because with some of our language um, uh, uh, interactions, they would misinterpret what we would say. Mm. We would say, call a dart to the CCU, and they would send a dart to the NCCU. Right, right, right. So we right. really had, and, and we could actually get the audios of these. So for every activation that we had, we did a within 24 hours review of the activation. We logged it into our database and we reviewed the audios to figure out how we could process improve. So those were some of the original. Right. And, you know, what strikes me about this is the, the incredibly rigorous, continuous quality improvement that went into this. Oh, you yeah. know, it wasn't like gee, it'd be great to have a team. Let's just throw some equipment in a cart and identify some people to be on call, and then we're done. I mean, it was it was years and still is, yeah. right? You still do this, right, yeah. where you identify yeah. every single yeah. time that a yeah. dart, and, and we should say, when we say a dart is called, it means that this airway, this difficult airway team is activated. Uh, there's rigorous review of every one. Absolutely, every single one. So that's, a, I think, a big take-home is that to do this and do it well 
you can't just kind of do the basics and then say, we're done, we did it, check that box. Yeah. This is a constantly ongoing process of getting rid of as much error as possible and streamlining as much as possible. Yeah. One of the interesting things that's come up, and again, I always take a little concern when the system has become so mature that we have actually come to appreciate it that it's, quote, just a dart. So when I ask either a resident or a senior person, hey, what was a dart? And they say, oh, it wasn't a real dart. And my answer back always is any activation of a dart is a real dart. Right. It means that at that moment, somebody, whoever it was, decided that this patient was in absolute distress and we needed to mobilize more resources. Right. And right. I smile. And then I say, well, what do you think happened at it? And sometimes they don't even go into the room to find out what happened. And that's the tragedy of having a program that is this large and this mature. Right. Again, and that's also why we do four times a year, we have the problem-based learnings and we, we go over the dark cases. Right. And, and at the college days, for yep. sure, we go over these dark cases. Right. And that's with our residents where we, we want them to learn from these as well. Oh, absolutely. So let's back up a little and talk about, you know, if people are thinking, this sounds great, you know, we don't have this at our place and we'd really benefit from it, um, which I think everybody would, if you have the, if you even think you might have the resources to be able to do this, what would you recommend? Where would people? Where should people start if they don't have a similar program but are interested? A couple of very basic things, and I'll send you the reference articles. Yeah, and so, we'll post those in the yes. show. Yes. So at the five-year mark, we actually wrote a reference article, and we put in what we called a toolkit, mm-hmm. which includes everything from – so, again, DART is a, is a three-part program at our institution. It's a daily operations, it's a safety initiative, and it's a multidisciplinary airway course. So you can mix and match what you think your institution needs, and we've got that in this original article, and we'll right. update it. From my point of view, when, when people have called, and, and I, we can talk about University of Rochester has a successful program now after five years, the first thing that I usually say as a, as a telephone intake is, tell me what your baseline is. Tell me what's happened at your institution, mm-hmm. who is the person who's interested in doing this, and why. Yep. And I'll usually get the famous, somebody had a bad outcome, it's almost always a death, or it's almost always a very bad surgical airway. And then I'll say, what's your interaction with leadership? And do you know your risk managers? And do you know your safety organizations? And most times, quite honestly, people in anesthesia departments, they do not know that level of leadership. They don't know who's on their CPR committee. They don't know who the nursing leaders are. And so we have kind of an initial questionnaire that we design for people to just say, this is what we recommend you do. And if you can't find those people, then what I do is I go to our risk manager and I say, can you help us with this institution yeah. and just find out who the leadership is? Right. Um, once you kind of get that, the other, my other next question is, do you have buy-in from other departments? And again, almost always it's either one attending has talked to another attending, but you really need the buy-in from these chairs. Yep. And there's still too many people that will say, we don't need this. You know, we're anesthesiologists, and I'll take it from the anesthesia point of view. We're anesthesiologists. We are the experts in airway management. We don't need anything. We just want your DART program. And my concept always is that's fine, but our DART program is multidisciplinary. Right. Just because it involves other techniques. Right. So that's kind of the first thing is absolutely to get the baseline. And the other reason why I suggest people get a baseline is because any program is going to cost money. And even though we call it funny money, the amount that is, is paid out in claims is almost always so for example our claims were in the multi-millions worth of dollars Mm. so it wasn't just the lives that were lost but the institution had to pay out x amount of multi-million dollars and that will sometimes get people's attention those two things and then there is the the quite honestly the um the the impact of the second victim and what's happened to the members in, in in that community yeah and in a smaller community they know these patients very well 
And so the whole second victim concept is enough to really kind of get people's attention. Right. And just if people aren't familiar with that, the idea is that if, you know, a patient is harmed from a failed airway attempt, that patient is the victim, but the providers are the second victims and can have very serious consequences. Some people leave medicine completely. People have PTSD, depression, anxiety. It can really affect people's lives and careers. So um, anything that can both protect patients but also protect our providers is is a good thing for sure. So... All right. That's great advice. You want to identify the baseline. You want to make sure you get wide buy-in both across departments and uh, up to hospital leadership, risk mm-hmm. management, et cetera. Um, what about, uh, you know, kind of if you're thinking about putting together a cart, you, you guys kind of this happened over time in the operating room first. What are, you know, important things to have in that difficult airway cart? So, so again, this needs to be customized to who your providers are and what your patient base is all about. There are many, many examples within the literature, within the you know, ASA Society guidelines for, you know, there's 100 different techniques. And at our institution, we were very cautious at every time a new technique came to getting on the bandwagon and adding it to our dart cart. And our philosophy was we want to get comfortable with that technique in an operating room, find out what the limitations and advantages are on elective patients and difficult patients before we change our carts around. Mm -hmm. And we also complement our dark carts with other airway adjuncts. The code cart has techniques. Our our code bags have techniques. But in general, again, the the classics are always going to be fiber optics. Mm -hmm. That's just fiber optic intubation because that is a a maintained standard for certain patients for awake intubations. Video laryngoscopy, without a question, needs to be a technique of choice. At our institution, it's not on our cart because we have it in all of our ICUs and in our OR, so we've chosen at this moment not to put it on the cart. Mm -hmm. At our institution, because we have otolaryngology, we have the Hollinger and the interior commissure scopes, other institutions might not have otolaryngology, so that's not a technique that they need at their institution. Uh, A a surgical airway of some kind is a must, and then it's going to be who does a surgical airway and how do you train for it. And then the other classics, you know, LMA for sure, supraglottic devices, um, elastic bougies. But again, there's, and we have the list of what we have on our cart, but it needs to be customized as to what you have uh, in your own department. That makes a ton of sense. So the, uh, I'm sure something that comes up a lot is uh, who, as you you kind of alluded to, who's going to do what here, right? So uh, let's take the audience through. Let's say there's a a difficult airway, a dart is called, and uh, the group shows up. So What's the way this is supposed to run? Is there a protocol? Is who? How do we know who's kind of running the the code or the show? Who does what at the at the dart call? Is there an order of operations? How does it go? So again, at, at this institution, we have a variety of response teams, and we're very fortunate. We have a rapid response team. We have a code team. Those are the two primary teams. Um, if a code team is deployed to a non ICU environment and they get to that patient on the ward, and they either see a patient with an identified wrist bracelet that says difficult airway, or they make the assessment of based on BMI or bleeding or something that proactively they want help, or they have initiated some kind of airway management, and they realize that they need um, the expertise, anybody is able to activate a DART. It can be the nurse in the room, it can be a provider, it could be a patient's family, even though they don't really know that, but Mm -hmm. it could be a medical student. Anybody can call a DART. With the original code team response, what you have is that infrastructure. So the answer is, to back it up, we cannot call a DART without calling a code. Okay. Unless you're in an ICU because you already have your ICU resources because 
the resources that come with our code team include the code cart, the pharmacist, the medical intensive uh, care uh, fellow who runs the the ACLS protocols, the anesthesia attending from the code team, the anesthesia resident or CRNA that's got our code bag, uh, the chaplain, the respiratory therapist. So that's basically that infrastructure that we have to have. Right. Um, that team is supposed to respond within five minutes. That's the metric at this institution. When you call a DART, the expectation is that we have approximately 10 minutes because you've already got something going on and stabilizing. Mm-hmm. When the DART comes, what you now get are attendings. You will get an attending trauma surgeon 24-7. You will get an attending otolaryngologist from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, along with their senior residents. You will get another attending uh, anesthesiologist and actually, at this institution, it's our central intensivist. Right. So we've kind of changed it a little bit, but that central intensivist is equivocally an anesthesiologist or trauma-based um, expert who's right. going to be there. Uh, and that's the team that now comes, along with the delivery of a dart cart from a designated unit that houses them. So, for example, we have 14 dart carts housed throughout the entire institution. Mm-hmm. Each cart is mapped out to about two or three different graphic locations. So it's no longer the poor ENT resident has to run to the OR and get a cart. The cart gets delivered. Right. And so that's kind of what happens. Those are the people that now arrive. When that team arrives, it's usually the primary code team that gives knowledge as to the the one-minute sentence as to what's going on. Right. And then the question always is who's in charge. Right. It's always who's in charge. And we all smile because at this point, um, even from the beginning, who's in charge of the surgical airway is going to be otolaryngology or trauma end of discussion. Who's in charge of physiology, mask ventilation, and some of the non-invasive techniques is the anesthesia provider. And then the MICU person is really in charge of the ACLS protocol for. So that's fairly easily spelled out. And it had to be spelled out because in our pre-DART, one of the issues was having a trauma surgeon and otolaryngology senior person, and they disagreed as to how to do a surgical airway. Mm. And there was a bad outcome. So those two teams in particular, especially because they were working so well with our percutaneous trach program, realized when they walk into the room, they help each other. So it's really no longer who's in charge, it's who's going to take responsibility for which component of the process that's going on. The one part that we're all basically, because we know each other so well now, it's who's in charge to say that we're not going to do this at the bedside, but we want to go to an operating room. Right. That's a slightly bigger question, but also a very obvious one. Once we, So angioedema, an automatic trigger to go to an operating room. Mm-hmm. A bleeding airway, an automatic trigger to go to an operating room because you can't use cautery in an ICU or on the floor. Right. Especially if you're slightly stable enough enough to get to one of our owners. Right, right. So those are those are kind of the main triggers. And then again, once you're in an operating room, you go back to each attending level provider is doing what they know best, and open communications are really the key right. to everything. Right. Yeah. So uh, I would imagine that if you need an emergency kind of, uh, there's already been, they've already tried a regular intubation, LMA, et cetera. Nothing's working. You're you're to the point where you need a surgical airway. I suppose there's a discussion between the trauma surgeon and the ENT attending if they're both there as to who's going to kind of... They're, they're both doing it. They're, they're first assisting They're each helping other. each other, yeah. They're one's on one side, one's on the other, and or they're supervising their very, very senior residents, but they are one on one side, one on the other. Yeah. If they're doing it as a team. And in my experience, you know, when... So there's kind of two ways to call, call a dart, so to speak, right? And obviously my experience as an intensivist is mostly doing this in the ICU, but one is proactive right. where you the patient is stable, but going to need an airway, but you can tell based on their comorbidities or their appearance or whatever that they are high risk to be difficult. And so before you do anything, you call the dart. And that's very nice because what you end up with is that whole team shows up Mm -hmm. and there's no emergency, but you get to sit with a bunch of very knowledgeable people and decide what's our plan going forward. That's 
that, in my opinion, the best way to use that it. That is the yeah. absolute best way to do it. The other is you get you arrive at a code, and uh, the patient is already uh, in extremis, and they uh, are uh, you you are unable to intubate. Or there's a patient who seems like they should be easy to intubate, but they aren't. And now you call a DART because you need the help, and that's where it's much more emergent. Um, and then that's where you're going to, you know, in my experience, if you haven't already, the anesthesia provider is probably going to attempt a regular, uh, you know, on the proactive side, the anesthesia provider is going to try to intubate the patient. But you're doing it with this incredibly deep backup team there. Mm-hmm. If you cannot do it, maybe you try again with, you know, video laryngoscopy or a fiber optic scope. But if that doesn't work, you've got the ENT folks who can do their rigid laryngoscopy or another attempt at a a fiber optic approach or whatever they're going to do. And then you've got the the next step of the surgical airway if needed. Mm -hmm. And that is a very reassuring uh, team to have if you need it. We've had instances where the trauma surgeon has started a a neck incision and the otolaryngologist has done his rigid scope and gotten the airway and the answer is great news. Just close the surgical incision. Right. And Um, so you guys have shown a couple things, right? You've shown both a decrease in surgical airways because you uh, are you, there. I imagine there's fewer times where you have to go that far. No, actually not. And that's one of the things that came out in the first couple of years that surprised everybody. So we uh, classically before the DART program had about 10 surgical airways a year. But as I said, the morbidity mortality was um, was not good. Within our DART program, we have between probably seven and 10 surgical airways every year. And when we first presented this, people were like, I thought you were going to not have surgical airways. And we're like, nope. We have them proactively, we have them done early, and we have them done in a uniform way by attending physicians. And so the answer is a surgical airway, in our experience here, is not a failed airway. Right. It is a, thank gosh, it's a good airway and a good brain. So you've decreased the morbidity and mortality associated with difficult airways. Correct. Knock on wood, in our 10 years, we have had no significant morbidity, mortality, or sentinel events in any adult DART activations. Right. Okay. So what we what, what this has done is it's gone from a situation where a, a, a surgical airway meant things were probably going to go, had already gone Correct. and would continue to go really badly. Correct. To now... Uh, obviously not ideal, but it's a well-planned, well-managed situation. Proactive. And, yeah. it, it's basically considered to be proactive. The other thing, and, and you probably would have gotten to this, things that we learned in the last couple of years to give us more time to do these techniques, and this has been very much promoted by the Society for Airway Management, is the use of supplemental oxygen and the use of continuous capnography capnography for every stage of airway management. So, for example, you walk in with a morbid obese patient who's got a BMI of 60, Mm -hmm. and we have the DART team. We don't just mask ventilate now with a face mask. We hook up nasal cannula in addition, so two oxygen sources, Mm -hmm. nasal cannula at, you know, 15 liters, or if you needed nasal CPAP or some other supplement so that while you're doing the, the mouth or the neck instrumentation, you're still providing this apneic oxygenation. Right. And then the other is continuous capnography for pre-oxygenation to optimize your ventilation for, and then for actually verification of endotracheal intubation. Right. And we're fortunate that our code team probably four or five years ago upgraded and standardized all of our ZOL um, AEDs to include continuous capnography. Right. And then our respiratory therapists also have an additional continuous capnography. But those two things are critical. I couldn't agree more. The difference between a CO2 detector, which yes. that thing can change color with some CO2 from the stomach. I mean, it's yes. very, I, I don't like those very much, but they're probably better than nothing. But if you have continuous waveform capnography, mm-hmm. that is really fantastic. Yeah, but the example would be we would go to a code, somebody would be helping and masking a patient, O2 sats are 88%. Our, our anesthesia residents or nurse anesthetists would immediately take over the airway, add an oral airway, use capnography, and suddenly our O2 sats are now 98%. And we're starting our airway management with a SAT of 98% and a lot more reserve 
So it's really enabled us to go from, you know, one or two minutes where we're already starting out with hypoxia and potentially hypercarbia to now increasing our O2 saturations and, and, and assuring that we have effective mass ventilation. And that is huge. Because, yeah. again, we went airway breathing circulation to circulation airway breathing. Yep. And that, that's made a huge difference. And if anything, any institution can do that. I mean, period. Yeah. Well, that's great. And we will put the links to your articles that kind of lay out the toolkit and everything mm -hmm. for people who are interested in uh, potentially starting this. But now let's turn to the provider who is working in a maybe a rural hospital or somewhere where they're, they don't have multiple attendings uh, in the hospital who, or even on call at home. If you're the sole anesthesia provider, you're on call overnight and there's a code or difficult airway, what do you recommend that that provider do to optimize their chance of success? Interesting question, and I get a lot of feedback, number one, when our residents graduate and go off into small community institutions and when we've gone to a number of you know, international and national courses. I have always said when you walk into any institution from day one, whether it's a new rotation, is to understand what your resources are. Number one is to find out who else is in that hospital or surgery center with you. What do they have existing for airway resources? What do they have for support? Maybe they're a hospital where the respiratory therapist is the person who intubates mm -hmm. or a technician helps them intubate. And then what baseline equipment do they have? And if the equipment is not even up to a standard that you know is a standard, then you either don't accept the practice or the answer is you work with the institution to say there's a minimal standard that, that just has to be. Right. So that's... That's my kind of first, it's non-negotiable at this point. And there are too many cases that I review where some provider went into an institution in rural whatever, and, you know, they came in with some, and they asked for the equipment, and just nothing existed. Yeah. And our residents have told us those stories. Yeah. And I can tell you a week later, they're getting all of our information, and they're being the ones to take the initiative. Yeah. Um, that being said, if you are the senior person and you're whatever, again, I would optimize the you have a patient in respiratory distress, before you start, you know, go down the, the basics of an algorithm. Do you want awake or asleep? You have to have some kind of an awake technique that you know how to do, whether it's the old-fashioned old blind nasal, uh, whether it's an awake fiber optic, whether it's an awake video laryngoscope. You have to know how to topicalize, and that's your responsibility to know where those drugs are. Yeah. Um, you have to know, again, whether how are you going to optimize mask ventilation. So superglottic devices are great, but the first time you have a failed superglottic device is the first time you're going to go back and make sure you know how to do an awake technique. Um, uh, a surgical airway, that's, gonna, that's the single hardest thing because, again, it is such a low incidence. And although you can practice on video models and simulation models and pig tracheas and now there's 3D models, it, it's... You've got to be able to do it, and I'm not sure that I would have the wherewithal, quite honestly, and I'm spoiled by having a DART program. Right. But that's – so to not have to get there, again, the answer is proactive. Right. And now, you, you said to me earlier when we were talking off the air um, that there's an article that just came out, I think, in Anesthesiology yes. about this, that ultimately, um, you know, you can't – just assume that it's a surgical airway, therefore it's a surgeon's responsibility, that ultimately, yeah, tell me a little about that. Ultimately, this is our responsibility. So it is becoming increasingly obvious as we go to airway meetings and the ASA guidelines and we continue to have airway misadventures that the focus of almost every airway meeting now is that the anesthesiologist is, is held accountable to be able to do a surgical airway, period. And I, again, to me, that's slightly harsh on one hand. On the other hand, when you're there and you've got a patient who suddenly really has no airway, 
And that's where, from my point of view, you really want to know what your resources are and who's around and, and how quick can you call somebody in. Or you don't want to take away spontaneous ventilation. Right. And you want to supplement your oxygen, you want to supplement your capnography, or you want to transfer, transfer to another institution. So, for example, angioedema, we see a lot in Baltimore because the risk factors are black female transplant patients, and we're at 60% black, 50% female on a lot of transplants. Yeah. And angioedemas used to have death in surgical airways, and right now they are the single trigger to have an awake fiber optic done in an operating room with a combined team. And we now have patients transferred from community hospitals in Maryland to Hopkins when they have angioedema in the early stages. Right. And that's not to say all angioedemas get intubated, but those were the ones that uh, that were the deaths. Right. So that's an example of transfer. Yep. Okay. And know how, you know, as you said, you have to know if, if that's not going to happen. If it's you, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't have a surgeon, if you have a surgeon there who's willing to do the surgical airway, great. But if you don't, you need to know how to do this. And I think there's a lot of thought that the, you know, when I was a resident, we were taught to use the percutaneous tracheostomy kit. That's, that has been, I don't want to say taken off the market, right. but the issue with the percutaneous trachs is that it is built in two different ways. In our percutaneous trach program, at this institution, we only do that with direct visualization with a right. bronchoscope in the patient's trachea. Right. The percutaneous trachs that are being uh, advertised in anesthesiologist are a blind Seldinger's technique. Yes. And now, because that is not a very successful technique in the hands of many, unless you've got you know a, a tiny little skinny person, that really has been replaced with an open surgical, three or four step, uh, you know, an incision, a, a scalpel, a bougie. Yep. Actually, a bougie first, and right. then a, a tube or a, a trach over the bougie. Right. And again, that's kind of nicely advertised, not advertised, but actually illustrated in the uh, the article that did just come out in Anesthesiology, May 2019, by Dr. Richard Cooper. Yeah. And there's a beautiful three pictures that I showed you, and again, with that technique, if if you can't find it somewhere else. Right. Sure and actually, can. we're going to be doing, uh, on ACRAC, a whole podcast on that technique. Uh, it's going to be great. I'm going to be interviewing someone who teaches this technique to people in the military and anesthesiologists, and oh, so we're going to go over that in detail, which I think will be great, that's because perfect. I think you're exactly, uh, this yeah. is what I've, I've been told, too, is that that... What I was taught as a resident is out right. the door. You know, that, that little kit we had is not the ideal way to do this, and we all need to know how to do it because especially if you don't have a DART team and it's going to be you, uh, you're going to be the one doing this, and you want to know the best technique to do it. Correct. You know, and there's a whole concept of this just-in-time training, which is really kind of the new buzzword. And um, I, I know one of our residents is leading the effort here along with uh, Dr. Laban Lester where you put together a very quick three-minute video. You can get them online where you take a technique that you really haven't done and you review it. You review it every month or so, yep. and it takes you two minutes to do. And it's so we're doing them for surgical airways, air cue, fiber optic intubation. Um, so there's ways to get there, but again, you, you don't want to get there. Right. Uh, you'd rather proactively not be there. Absolutely. So it's, let's. You've mentioned algorithm. Let's talk about that. So the ASA has, of course, the ASA difficult airway algorithm. And then there, in your article, you talk also about the vortex uh, approach. So tell me a little about how you in in our program here, how you guys have balanced those two. So the vortex approach um, comes from uh, Nicholas uh, Crimes out of New Zealand for the uh, Australia for the last few years, and really what it's meant to be is a visual so that people in a room who are not anesthesiologists can understand that what you're trying to do again is everybody limits something to three techniques, but you want to start with again the awake versus asleep, a superglottic device if you need it laryngoscopy if you need it. And as you're spiraling, you're always asking who's going to do the surgical airway. Mm-hmm. And those are always the questions when I walk into a DART or, or a major operating room or any place that's doing airway management. I don't say to the resident or the CRNA, do you know the AC algorithm? 
I just go back to that, the basic, awake or asleep, you know, direct laryngoscopy or not, super element, you know, glottic, or who's going to do the surgical airway. And this is just a visual. Yep. And it's just kind of a, you know, green is good and blue is where you're kind of swirling into the deep water. Right. Um, another th- a thing that is very, very good is that one of our colleagues, well, you've probably met her, Dr. Jessica finally who's up at the VA at Yale, put together what's called the DARK uh, web-based program. And it is, again, for it's the difficult airway algorithm and rescue cricothyrotomy. And it's a beautiful web-based program that you can actually get MOCA credits for through the ASA. That's great. And it walks through all of this, um, including the simulation. And we can maybe put a link to that. You can put a link to that also. Yeah. Um, That's great. So really important stuff. And and whether you kind of have that vortex algorithm or you think through the ASA algorithm or you kind of combine it into both. But having an algorithmic approach so you don't forget anything and the heat it's easy for us now to say of course you know we're sitting here there's nobody in in crisis and we can of course say oh yes if i can't mask ventilate i will go to an lma but right. in the moment in the heat of the moment you may forget to pull out your lma and that can be a life-saving device the other is that until you've had a failed technique you're not a believer right until you've had a failed video laryngoscope a failed lma I, we had a incredibly difficult surgical airway the other day and the other, the other attending just said, did you know that this was going to be incredibly difficult? And the answer was, nobody knew it was going to be that difficult. Right, right. So until you have a fail technique, you are not a believer. Right. Well, let me ask you now, you know, after many, many years of experience with these kind of airways, what makes you decide to do an awake intubation? In, and I'm talk, not talking about a, a crashing patient in the, uh, at a dark call. I'm talking about you, you're doing anesthesia. You've got a patient coming in for a case. And obviously, you know, there's the obvious ones. Patients always needed an awake intubation. They've got the kind of, you know, that they they're got it plastered all over their chart. Awake intubation only. Okay, that's obvious. But a patient who's, let's say, never been intubated before, what makes you say, you know, I think we need to do this awake? So again, based on my experience, I have a number of triggers. Um, yeah. Electively, we'll talk about not surgeon. So angioedema is an absolute trigger. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, fused TMJ. You can't get into the jaw. Mm-hmm. Even if you're one or two millimeters and you think you that's an absolute trigger for me. You have to be yep. able to open your mouth. Um, morbid obesity, and I mean morbid, you're, you know, the BMIs of, you know, 45, 50, 60, which we happen to get at this institution, mm-hmm. because you have no FRC. You've got, you, you, even if you, and you never know on those patients if you can mass ventilate. Some of them are the easiest in the world. But some of them are not. And at that point on, they're going to profoundly desaturate mm-hmm. um, a bleeding or a, a big tumor. So, again, we have one of the largest head and neck programs in the country. And some of these huge tumors, I, I, you know, that's where you really teamwork with your ENT yeah. electively. Right. Uh, and sometimes those are elective trachs right, right from the start. Because right. no matter what you do or topicalize, the, the tissue is so abnormal. Um, syndromes. So, and we talked about this the other day with, uh, with respect to our patient. Because our pediatric surgery and anesthesia and ICUs are so good, syndrome kids are growing up. And their techniques in the pediatric world were almost always mass ventilation. Um, they were different. They were smaller. Laryngospasm is easily broken. We're now getting the hunters and the hurlers and the mucopolysaccharides and the aperts and the, the golden hars. And all of these syndrome kids are growing up. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing them as either young adults or in their 30s. And a lot of the anesthesia records are archived, so you're not getting them. Some of them look, the Pierre Robins who've had their jaws, so they look like they're kind of normal. But the reality is their internal anatomy is still very, very different. And those are ones that were fairly good when we identify them are getting preoperative consultations. Right. And that, again, we have the luxury. We send them to our our preoperative centers. We have otolaryngology come and do a you know, an exam on them. We might have them come in the operating room with us. We still usually try a technique that should be easiest 
so that we know that in the future some of our more basic techniques might work as opposed to always saying, hey, we're going to do an awake fiber optic or we're going to do something very sophisticated. Right. But those are, those are the ones that really get my, hey. And then you kind of have that, that look. Yep. Like you can kind of look at the person across the room when you're in a pre-op area and say, you know, that's the one person over there, profound obstructive sleep apnea mm-hmm. that I might be doing awake. Yeah. I mean, are those your triggers? Those. Yeah, well, certainly everything. I, I, I might – the morbid obesity one is, you know, I'd say I, I am probably less – less sure to say I would do an awake intubation with that being the only risk factor. I think, um, you know, in my experience, which is certainly less than yours, uh, you know, whether we can mask usually with an oral airway, certainly, uh, I would often have a video laryngoscope oh, in the room. Absolutely. Um, if I'm really worried, what I will sometimes do is, uh, take a look with a video laryngoscope with a dose of ketamine so that they'll keep okay. breathing, but okay. they'll tolerate the, sure. the video laryngoscope in the mouth. Um, so I think those are kind of maybe there's some hybrid techniques in there, but certainly those others, uh, angioedema, fused jaw, bleeding tumor, um, syndromic uh, uh, sort of kids to adults, yeah. um, I think are, are easy uh, no-brainers and often probably will have had or at least will be ha- have been told this is how right. it's going to have to be and right. it's safest for them. Yeah. I'll tell you the other thing that has surprised us, just in case you don't get, get a, a chance to ask me, in our DART program, probably 10% of all of our patients involve surgical involve pre-existing um, uh, tracheostomies, tra- uh, stomas, laryngeal stomas, mm. um, or any other kind of surgical airway, oh, and stents, pulmonary stents in this institution. Yep. And that was a surprise because most people think that a tracheostomy is a stable airway, and it's not. They can mucus plug. They can get bleeding around them. They can become dislodged. We have specialty trachs. So that alone is an area that for years, usually once a year, we have to have a review of all the different types of trachs we have in the institution. It's part of our airway course. Um, and it probably ought to be one of these just-in-time videos just to review for everybody. But always surprises everybody when a tracheostomy patient is a DART activation. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. It's not just because a patient has a trach doesn't Correct. mean it's, it's no problem. Easy, just stick a, stick a tube in there or just hook them up to Correct. the vent. Similarly, like you said, uh, patients, especially with very proximal stents, tracheal stents, yep. uh, man stem stents, you want to be very careful oh, intubating absolutely. those patients because if you dislodge it and that's what that's what's keeping their airway open, Correct. then you know you can you and can we, have major. We problems. just had a case like that, and so now that's going to be an automatic new alert. So yep. all of our tracheal stent patients in this program, again, because we have a large interventional pulmonology program here, they're now going to be identified as difficult airway, and then you'll be able to read the paragraph underneath it that says they have a tracheal stent. You know, use caution or use a smaller tube or something. Fantastic. This has been great, Dr. Mark. Anything? that we didn't cover that you think we should cover before we sign off? The only final thing that I would just say is that as we look at, like, what our new directions are. Yeah. Um, we And it's it's more towards kind of wellness. We talked about the second victim, and we talked about the institution being at risk. But now what we're getting are patients who are coming back and saying, hey, I had a near-death experience. I was a difficult airway patient. Nobody told me anything about it. I need to come back into an operating room system, and I'm I'm scared. And so we're now putting together kind of a unique, we, we like to be kind of first in the areas, a unique wellness program for patients that have uh, experienced, we call it a breath from death. Uh, Rosie Scheinberg is going to be kind of in charge of it with her integrative medicine. Yeah. We're going to bring them into our simulation center so long as they feel comfortable doing that. Hmm. So they can see this is what it's going to look like when it's done well. Uh, we're going to review their charts for them because they don't understand what happened to them. And so that's kind of our this total wellness package that people really need to address. I knew nothing about this, and that sounds amazing. Okay. So so you're going to take patients who have had difficult airway experiences unanticipated. Correct. 
take them into the sim center, mm-hmm. show them what it's going to look like the next time. What is an awake intubation? Mm-hmm. How's it going to look? What what is what are all these people yep. who are going to be running around doing? What is that? What is that lidocaine getting squirted in your mouth yep. doing? Yep. And then you're going to help them understand what happened the first time and why and how we're going to prevent it the second time. And also, the, Rosie is going to be helping them with, do you do acupuncture? Do you do feedback mechanisms? I mean, because these patients have got post-traumatic stress. And the one patient that we're going to work with actually was involved in a, a legal suit that she ultimately dropped because she, she latched onto a consult with us. Her name is Elaine Obie, and she's going to come to the World uh, Airway Meeting and be a patient advocate and just say, this is, don't let this happen to you. And I've, all, I've also presented this to our residents. It's kind of a nice presentation. But she cool. wants to be the advocate that says, people need to know about this. I had a near-death experience. I've had post-traumatic stress. Integrative medicine and these techniques are really helping me. And now I want to make sure that everybody really is on the bandwagon for good, good evaluation, good airway care, and then following up with patients who have not had good experiences. Yeah, this so. is amazing. And I bet you're going to be able to really improve the experience for these patients. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, Lynette, thank you so much. This is great. I think this will be really helpful for our audience. We'll put a bunch of the uh, articles and, uh, and links up on the show notes, and I'm sure people will really appreciate it. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. All right. That was great. I think this kind of thing is is really crucial. I can't tell you guys out there how much peace of mind it gives me here to know that if I, in the ICU or on the floor, am approaching a really potentially difficult airway, that I can call this team and have this kind of backup. I tell our residents, you know, uh, if you're going to be in an academic center like this, it's one of the huge advantages is that you really have this kind of backup. Um, And I'm so glad that we do. All right. Check out the website, ACRAC.com. Let us know what you think. What are you doing for difficult airways at your place? What do you recommend others take into account? Maybe that we didn't mention here. You can leave a comment and everyone can learn from what you have to say. Please, if you're a fan of the show, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show when they're looking for an anesthesia-related podcast. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. We really appreciate it. And if you prefer, you can make a donation anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. A huge thank you to... Dennis Quo for composing the original music for ACRAC. Check out his fantastic website and all his music at studymusicproject.com. Thanks, of course, also to Brian Park for the outlines he does for some of the episodes. And thanks to all of you for listening. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Lynette Mark, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.